When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf, and welcome to my show, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess, a podcast dedicated to helping you take back control of your mental health and life. In this special episode, I interview epidemiologist Dr. Will Bolshewitz on all things related to the coronavirus crisis. Dr. Will is a world-renowned epidemiologist and GI doctor. He got his Master's of Clinical Research at Northwestern University and completed an Epidemiology Fellowship at UNC. In this episode, Dr. Will debunks dangerous misinformation regarding this virus, explains how the virus developed and spread so quickly, what has been done regarding vaccines, how we can protect ourselves, symptoms of the virus, what you should do if you think you may have the virus, how to protect yourself if you already have a weakened immune system, why social distancing is necessary and important, and so much more. For the most accurate and up-to-date information on the virus, check out the World Health Organization and Center for Disease Control websites. I will include helpful links in the show notes. One more note before we begin. With all the stress, anxiety, social distancing and isolation stemming from the coronavirus, the need to connect with each other is more critical than ever. I created a dedicated Facebook support group to stay connected with others and to share your challenges and best tips for dealing with our new normal. The link to join the group will be in the show notes. And for additional resources to help you manage anxiety and stress and worry during this crisis, check out some of my books which are on sale now. To get 25% of all individual books, DVDs, and workbooks, visit drleaf.com and use the code DRLEAF25 at checkout. The link will be in the show notes. Lastly, I have put my new Brain Detox app, Switch, on sale as this is a great tool to help manage your mental health during this crisis. Currently, it's 50% off a three-month subscription. Just go to theswitch.app for more details and to download the app. The link will be in the show notes. Another note before we begin, many of you may be familiar with my 21-day brain detox program. Well, I am so excited to tell you about the new and improved version of this program, which is now available in my app, Switch. In this app, I guide you through the five steps that you do over 21 days. In this program, you will identify the root cause of whatever is causing that anxiety or depression or toxic thinking in your life and how to eliminate the root cause and how to build a healthy new neural network and thinking habit. This app recently went through clinical trials and the results have been astounding. And the science behind this program is backed by over 30 years of research. I'm also so excited because I'll be adding more and more specialized programs to this app and more amazing features like support groups and coaching. To download the app and start your brain detoxing journey, visit theswitch.app. 
You can also find the app in the iTunes App Store and Google Play. Just look for Switch On Your Brain. The link and details will also be in the show notes. Dr. B, it's such an honor to have you in the studio with me today. I mean, I want to say it's so exciting. It's exciting to have you in here, but it's not exciting times. It's really very, very challenging times. And and I'm very honored that you've joined me today to help us just unpack what's going on with COVID-19 and just to try and get some level of understanding. But before we begin, Dr. B, do you mind just introducing yourself a little bit and telling us about your great name? I love it. Happy to, Carolyn. Thank you. First of all, let me say thank you so much for having me on your podcast. And of course. I just want to frame the conversation before I talk about myself a little bit and just say that that these are challenging times. And there is a lot that we are learning every day. And I want people who are listening to this to, to join me in recognizing that knowledge is power. And with this information, mm-hmm. we are going to put up a fight against this virus and we are going to save lives. And every single person listening to this podcast, each one of us needs to pull the rope in the same direction. And we can do that and we can save lives and we can be difference makers. And so I just wanted to say that right off the bat. I love that. So my name is Will. My last name is Bolsowitz. It's a long Polish name. And everyone calls me Dr. B. It's been that way for many years. <laughs> and, you know, I'm here today to talk about the COVID-19 virus, the SARS coronavirus 2. And so I am a practicing gastroenterologist. That's my area of expertise. I also am board certified as an internal medicine doctor. And I have a unique background. I trained in internal medicine. I was a chief resident at Northwestern. And while I was there, I received a master's degree in clinical research by doing night classes, which was crazy. I don't know why I did Mm -hmm. that, but it was crazy. And then I went on to do both a gastroenterology fellowship combined with an epidemiology fellowship at the University of North Carolina, which is the number two rated school of public health in the United States. It's tied with Mm. Harvard. So I, at one point, considered myself to be very firmly an epidemiologist. And I took that hat off for, you know, really to focus on taking care of patients and practice as a gastroenterologist. But those skills are there. And right now I'm taking off my gastroenterology hat, my gut health expertise. And you and I will reconvene mm-hmm. at some point in the near future to exactly. talk about my book, Fiber Fuel. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But today I'm going to put on my epidemiology hat. And I'm going to be the epidemiologist that's going to guide us through a conversation about the COVID-19 virus. Well, it's fantastic to have that knowledge and that background. So thank you so much, Dr. B. So let's start with, I have a lot of questions from my listeners and that I have as well. So let's start at the beginning. Why did this start? You know, how do diseases start and travel so fast? Well, as you know, there are viruses that exist in nature. There are viruses that infect humans of many different varieties. Some of them just cause the common cold. Some of them are more severe, you know, hepatitis, hepatitis B, hepatitis C. And just like us humans have our types of viruses that we come into contact with routinely, so do animals. And these viruses will circulate through with animals. And if we spend too much time in close proximity to animals that are carrying these viruses, we run the risk that one day the virus could jump from an animal into a human. And if that virus has the right sort of characteristics, then once it makes that leap, it has the ability to spread through humans from person to person. And that's what we're seeing with this particular virus. 
So this particular one, COVID, started with a bat and it traveled so fast. Can you talk about the speed? Because, you know, well, I was just having a Dr. B. I keep calling you Will because I'm used to calling you Will. I was just looking at some of the numbers and, you know, if you look at SARS, which was the first that pandemic that occurred in 2003, they had 8,098 cases identified and 774 deaths in an eight-month period. But this one, COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2, has had 82,000 people identified and 2,800 dead in two months. And those aren't even the numbers that I got last night, which is globally 242,713 people infected and 9,800 deaths. So it's definitely way faster than SARS. And I know you're going to talk about MERS. Can you talk about why it travels so fast? Well, what we're seeing here is something that you will find in nature no matter where you look, where if a whether it's a new virus or a new animal or, you know, <laughs> us humans mm-hmm. enters into a population and if it has no competition and it has nothing to stop it, then what you see is you see that this virus will take off. And taking off means exponential growth. That means doubling. So rather than being what we would describe as linear growth, where it goes from one day two to four to six to eight to 10, instead of that, what you see is you go two, four, eight, 16, 32, 64, mm. and you can see how quickly that can take off. The doubling time is the key here. Now, exponential, mm-hmm. exponential growth. And that's what you're seeing. When you look at the curves that are showing up in these different countries, when the virus arrives, initially there will be one person. But our estimates, there's, there's a number that we use in epidemiology called the r naught, And the r naught basically is, okay, how many people, if you are sick, how many people do we think that you personally are going to infect? And the range for this virus, for COVID-19, is anywhere from 1.5 to 4, with most people estimating it to be about 2.5. So for every mm. single person who contracts the virus, they're infecting somewhere between 2 and 3 new people. Hmm, and, it's, and it's spreading in that regard. It has this doubling time. And you're, and you're seeing this when you see the curve that basically just starts off very flat and then it starts to turn that corner and then it just skyrockets straight up. And you're seeing that in New York City right now when, if you look hmm. at the data that's occurring there. And so now why COVID-19? Where did this come from? And how, how can we compare it to the SARS outbreak? Why, was, why is this different this time around? So we think that this started around the third week of November in China, in the, Wu, in, the Wuhan, in the city of Wuhan. And from that point, now here we are with over 200,000 cases around the world. The problem that we have with this particular virus that makes it different than the SARS is the transmission of the virus in the absence of symptoms. This is a huge issue. Mm, that's really a scary one, isn't it? It is very scary because if you don't know that you're sick, you can be infecting your family and friends and not realize it. And if you go about your business as usual and you just go out into public and you do the things you usually do, and maybe you go to a sporting event on the weekend or a concert, that's quite scary because you could be infecting a lot of people if you don't even know that you actually are infective, that, you, that you're carrying this virus. May I interrupt you just very quickly there, just in terms of, of what you have just said, in terms of this, the traditional flu, if there is such a thing as if that's the correct word, that's not the same thing. That's not, it's not, you, you will have the symptoms and then you infect people. This one, it's the asymptomatic infecting of each other that is so frightening. We know that there's, with this one, an incubation period that exists. It, it, it seems that people will not manifest symptoms after obtaining the virus. They now have it. 
it's multiplying, but they will not manifest symptoms for typically four to five days, potentially out to 14 days. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, those symptoms will be very mild, which would in a, in a way give you a sense of relief, like, oh, well, there's a good percentage of people that have very mild symptoms. That's actually problematic because people who have very mild symptoms wouldn't think that they need to change their behavior to protect other people from basically transmitting the virus to them. Mm. And so that's one of the major issues that we see with this is that you have asymptomatic spread. You have some people who are very mildly affected who don't, who wouldn't even realize that they have it. And then the flip side is you have the, you know, essentially violent version of this that can occur in about 5%, we think, perhaps less, hopefully less when we get better data, but about 5% who will have severe disease that forces them into the intensive care unit. And so what's different about this compared to SARS, SARS came out in 2003. It essentially is the cousin of this virus. It's also a coronavirus mm-hmm conceptually very similar. It started with a bat and it also started in China. And the difference between Mm -hmm. the two is that was not transmitted with asymptomatic disease. People did not transmit that infection until they were actively symptomatic. Mm -hmm. And it was a very violent disease. So people who did have it tended to get very violent symptoms. And then they knew, oh my gosh, I need to, you know, isolate myself because I have this virus. Whereas here we are and we have it basically going incognito and sneaking mm-hmm. through and we don't know who has it or, do, or or who does not have it because our testing has not caught up yet. It's very insidious if you think of it like that, the asymptomatic spread, which is very frightening. What are the symptoms that people need to look out for? And I know people have got this all over the place, but there is a bit of confusion as to the symptoms. So the best available information at this point suggests that the main most common symptom is fever close to 90% of people will spike a fever. And so monitoring your body temperature is an important way of protecting not only yourself and being aware of the possibility, but protecting the people that you care about around you. Mm -hmm. We also find a cough is a common symptom. It tends to be a dry cough, not mucus producing, and shortness of breath. So these respiratory symptoms in combination with fever are sort of the classic pattern. The problem is that there are some people who will have symptoms different from this. Some people will, a minority, but some people will manifest a sore throat. Some people will manifest congestion, think that it's just the common cold. Mm -hmm. Some people will have body aches, think that it's the flu. Mm. And some people will have digestive symptoms. So there is certainly a percentage that have diarrhea or nausea and vomiting. And so all of these things, if there is a change in the way that you feel, even when it's mild, there is the possibility that this could be present. And so it's not just having a fever. That's so interesting. So this is why the current approach of people being quarantined or trying to flatten the curve, et cetera, is so important. So can you talk to that? Oh my gosh. I really, (laughs) really, really want to emphasize this point. Thank you. Because I feel like the conversation that I see occurring on the internet and on social media is about, well, how do you, you know, what do you take to like protect yourself? Do you take a supplement? Do you do the sauna? You know, well, the reality is this, there is one piece of information that absolutely will save lives. And that is that this is person to person transmission. Mm -hmm. And so if we separate from each other, 
if you never come into contact with a person who is carrying this virus, and again, the challenge is, we don't know who that person is. They could be completely asymptomatic. Mm -hmm. You just don't know. But if you never come into contact with a person who is carrying this virus, you personally will never get the virus. If you were a doomsday prepper and you go to your compound with your doomsday prepping stuff (laughs) and you live there and you isolate yourself, then those people who have prepared for this moment actually will be completely fine and never never get the coronavirus. But here's why it's really important. The, The idea of isolation, there's a spectrum. It could be quarantine where we're forced into our homes and we have to stay there. It could be the encouragement of social distancing, which leaves it to your discretion And I would really encourage every single one of you listening Mm -hmm. to this to engage with complete seriousness to this concept, because this is how we can save lives. Mm -hmm. What makes it so important is you mentioned, Carolyn, flattening the curve. What does this mean? Mm -hmm. It means that basically what we're doing is we're dragging this process out. What we don't want, what you're currently seeing in Italy is a surge Mm -hmm. of too many cases all at once. Mm -hmm. And we have a limitation to our healthcare system. There are finite resources. The main Mm -hmm. thing that is a concern right now, there's a couple things, but the main thing with regard to this are respirators. Mm -hmm. Because people who get the severe form of this respiratory virus will require a respirator to get through it. And if you don't have enough respirators for all the people who need it at once, at one particular time, you got a major problem in your community. And most hospitals Mm -hmm. are not stocked with an adequate number to support this. So let me give you an example. I live in a community outside of Charleston, South Carolina. We have 100,000 people in our community. And there are two small community hospitals with about 25 ICU beds total. Mm. If we took our operating rooms and we turned our operating rooms into ICU beds, which they could, we might be able to get that number up to 60. 60... 60 respirators for 100,000 people. Yes. So we just got to slow it down. And the the way that you slow it down is to reduce the transmission. Don't let it have a free for all. Don't let it just run like a wave right through all of us. Instead, you have to do the social distancing so that this does take time. And we have to accept that it does take time. But by making it take time, we are allowing our resources to keep up and we are saving lives by doing that. Oh, that's such a brilliant explanation because people are seeing that flattening of the curve graph all over and I don't think they a lot of people are really getting it, but you've explained that so incredibly well. So we what we don't want is a sudden peak. We don't want that peak of that wave, that curve to get too high. We want to flatten it so that there's enough time for us to build the resources, the beds, etc. As I was in New York, I think it's something I think it's across the United States. We've got half the amount of beds that they have in France, for example, for people. So it's even less here than it is, you know, it's I mean it's bad everywhere in the world. And I think New York, I can't remember the exact figures, but it's something similar to the ratio that you've described now in your area. So this is very real. So when we're staying apart from each other, we are enabling our resources to be slowing down the speed of the of the disease of the virus and we are getting people we are allowing the hospitals to stock up and this is so important get the necessary equipment that people need to survive yes so flattening the curve is really is saving lives 100% and this is this is where the people who are listening at home you know what we're talking about now is not how you protect yourself if you actually get the virus what we're talking about now is protecting yourself so that there's a lower likelihood that you or your family members will get the virus and also that 
it, for your community's sake, that this is going to take a longer time to work its way through. And as a result of that, it, like you said, Carolyn, keep those resources up to check if possible. Exactly, because we don't want to be in the position that they are in Italy. I was listening to a doctor the other day who was crying, who said they've got, I think it was a 75-year-old man and a woman of three kids, and they both need the ventilator. I mean, they're having to make a choice of who's going to live and who's going to die. So in terms of Italy's response in North Korea, I mean, Korea's response, what is the difference? Can you explain how the two countries yes. have handled this thing differently? So Korea had experience from dealing with the SARS outbreak. And in a way that informed a rapid response on their part, which was very well orchestrated. They did it the way that it should be done, which is that they got access to the testing immediately. Mm -hmm. And they used that information to maximize, maximize testing. And so essentially what they did is they were very, they, they, they made sure that they were supplied with adequate levels, amounts of tests and they started using it liberally in the correct places. So if they identified a person, for example, who had symptoms, they would test them immediately. They would get access. They would make it free. Come get your test. We will test you immediately. If positive, we'll know within a few hours. We isolate you. And then mm. we track down your family members. And we identify who are your close contacts that we need to test them as well. And we don't care if they are symptomatic or not symptomatic. We want to know whether or not they have the virus because they've been in contact with you. And so they had a systematic approach. They also, uh, quite interesting, they used technology to their advantage. So they mm -hmm. were, I don't know how people in the United States would feel about this, but they basically got access to people's information. So they were able to track when they were using the credit card, where they were using the credit card. They were tracking their cell phones. And by doing that, when they identified where the cases were, they were able to use that information from a public health response perspective to find out where the cases might be and do appropriate testing. So what you see in Korea was rapidly grabbing the test making sure the test was available to people, being smart about the way they implemented the test from a public health perspective, and high, high, high levels of testing that allowed them to basically identify where the problems were and contain it to the best of their ability. So they did an amazing job. That's the mm. way it should be done. Rapid response, identify, track who's involved, identify, isolate, and keep and then track the circle and test them and identify so that you widen the circle and you catch it before it gets even wider. Exactly, because these asympt the asymptomatic spread that you and I are talking about, the problem is we don't know who those people are. But in the case of South Korea, it was almost like they it were did. acting like detectives. Mm. Right. So they're acting like detectives. Mm. So they were able to say, oh, well, if this person has it, then who are their contacts? OK, let's check their contacts. And they found it early. So it's a proactive versus reactive approach. Very proactive, but also they were very smart about basically buying into this test from the very beginning. It was a smart move. By now, I'm sure you've heard of the dangers of artificial light, especially artificial blue light from our devices like phones and TVs. If you aren't familiar with what artificial blue light is and how it can negatively impact your mental and physical health, then I highly recommend you listen to my podcast, episode 114. Do you find you get those terrible headaches at night or after a long day of work at a computer? I used to get this all the time until I started using 
blue blocks glasses. The one company I trust to make the highest quality and scientifically backed blue light blocking glasses. Blue Blocks has a variety of lens options, so you can get a pair that's suited to your most pressing needs, such as the Summer Glow Lens, which is designed for daytime use, for those who work under intense artificial lighting and suffer from migraines, anxiety, depression, or seasonal affective disorder. Many customers have reported that these glasses have really helped improve their mood. Get 15% off your order today when you use the code DRLEAF at checkout. Just go to blueblocks.com and use the code DRLEAF at checkout. The link and details will be in the show notes. So are we going to be able to play catch up in the United States? I hope so. I think that there are a lot of questions to be answered with regard to that. The playbook that South Korea has laid out for us could be implemented here in the United States, but the key is access to testing, which is where we are failing at the moment. Mm-hmm. So that is a very primary thing to address is the testing. It is, because that's, that's also what happened in Italy, is that they had testing, they misused the tests in the very beginning. So they, they basically burned up a whole bunch of tests because they weren't organized in the proper way. People went about their business. They did not socially isolate. And so there was basically a free-for-all spread of this virus. And then it all spiked all at once because it basically grew out of control before they even knew that there was a problem. And so mm-hmm. that's kind of what happened in Italy. And, and again, the issue is identifying that there's a problem and implementing these measures immediately. And that's what we're trying to do here in the States by telling people, Social distancing, isolation, these are important concepts right now. This is how we slow this down. Mm -hmm. This is not something to just play around or get irritated with. It's very difficult to be socially isolated, but it's saving lives. And that that is what our primary objective at this point is, is to save lives. So, Dr. B, on on that note, let's talk about transmitting, how this this is transmitted. Because you've mentioned the, the social distancing and a lot of people are really battling to understand why. Can we go into a bit of the sort of science behind what's going on and how it's transmitted? Sure. So this is this is a respiratory virus, and you will find it in respiratory droplets. But what's unique about it is that you don't need to actually cough in order to transmit the virus to other people. You just need to be in their general vicinity. And by mm. breathing, you have the possibility that by breathing, you are breathing the virus. And there was a new study that just came out in the New England Journal of Medicine this week that showed us that, that the virus in aerosol form will actually linger in the air for more than three hours. I saw that. I saw that that exact paper, that three hours. So you can go and stand in the line outside your local store and they are controlling how many people are getting in. But if you stand in the line and it's three hours haven't even passed, but you stand and someone's infected, but they're asymptomatic, there's a good chance just by standing in the line that you can pick this up. That's how serious this is. Yes, it is. And we think that six feet is sort of the what we have been describing as the magic halo. So six feet is the amount of space. So when we say social distancing, it doesn't mean that you can't like literally say hi to a friend, you know, that you see outside or say hi to your neighbor. You can do that. You just want to keep your distance so that you are not mixing with each other and potentially propagating this virus. That's also because the respiratory droplets are heavy and they'll, they can't seem to go further than the six foot. That is, is that kind of correct how I've explained it? Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely correct. But it, and it's also important to recognize, and uh, although we do not believe that this is the 
predominant form of transfer. But one of the other potential ways of, of transfer is that, as you described, the respiratory droplets get into the air and they can land on surfaces. Mm, and that that's same, a big issue. Yeah, it's a big issue. In the same New England Journal of Medicine article that said that they'll, it'll linger in the air for three hours showed that it could continue to stay active for 24 hours on cardboard, for 48 hours on stainless steel, for 72 hours on a piece of plastic. And so this is where the hand washing comes into play or you know, the use of the hand sanitizers. So the, it, it, I see there's a lot of also information out there about which is better, the hand sanitizer or the soap. The hand sanitizers are just going. And so people are also concerned about will the soap work as well. Can you talk about that? Well, I think the cleanliness is the goal, right? So mm-hmm. what, what we want is if you were to touch a surface that potentially carries the virus, then you want to shed that virus off of the off of your skin before you put it to your mouth or put it to your nose or your eyes. And you don't realize how often a day you reach your hand up and mm. touch your nose or mouth or eyes. It's just kind of, you know, we're part of what we do. So if we could train ourselves to not touch surfaces, that would be a good thing. If we could train ourselves to not reach our hand up to our face, that would be a good thing. But Regular hand washing is one thing that can make a difference. And with regard to what is better, here's what we know. We know that if you're going to wash your hands, it needs to be for 20 seconds. Mm-hmm. Which breaks down the, the virus, doesn't it? It breaks down the virus. So you need it. But, you know, many people will wash their hands like, you know, it's like a, it's like a drive-by going through the drive-through where you like, <laughs> you know, barely like graze your hands with the soap and it's already rinsed off. So take the time. 20 seconds, count it out to yourself or turn on a song and let it play for a while. So that may be superior. We don't really know necessarily, but what we do know when it comes to the hand sanitizer is this, that it needs to be of sufficient density of alcohol. So, and that would be 60% ethanol or 70% Mm -hmm. isopropanol. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, to me, I favor hand washing between the two because I feel like it's more of a sure thing as long as you're doing the 20 seconds. They're saying sing happy birthday twice and you've got your 20 seconds. Hey, there you go. I like that. (laughs) Okay, so now there's so much dangerous misinformation out there and it's being updated hourly all over the place. There's misinformation, there's good information. What do you recommend is a great resource for people to get the most accurate information? So I feel like there are a number of good websites that are trustworthy and reliable. Johns Hopkins has a really nice website dedicated to the COVID virus. The University of Minnesota has one under the name CIDRAP, C-I-D-R-A-P dot U-M-N dot E-D-U. Okay, so that's their infectious disease website, and you'll find a special link to COVID virus. We'll put links in the show notes for these sites that you're mentioning. Yeah, that sounds great. And then we have the CDC, of course, Mm -hmm. which can provide Mm -hmm. information and is constantly updated. And then one of the things, you know, with me personally, I felt compelled. I've just seen way too much misinformation out there. And so I felt compelled to share, you know, basically aggregate the information and share it and then also constantly update it. And so I'm actually in the process of developing you know, essentially a white paper or a 10 to 15 page document kind of laying out where we are with this COVID virus. And it's something that I'm planning to update constantly and, and, and provide that for free on my website, which is at theplantfedgut.com. That's fantastic. Thank you. That's really fantastic. And we'll make sure that those links are in the show notes. Okay. Masks, are they effective? So there are different types of masks. Most people who are at home have seen the surgical mask, which is the one that Mm -hmm. you see on like Grey's Anatomy. 
The problem with the surgical mask is that it does not form a seal, like a vacuum type seal. Mm. And as a result, it doesn't protect you from respiratory droplets. It could protect you from a splash, but it doesn't protect you from respiratory droplets. Is it better than nothing? Sure. But truly what you need in this particular case is something that only healthcare workers are familiar with, which is called an N95 mask. Mm-hmm. And we're each taught how to use this because, for example, if a patient is being ruled out for tuberculosis or when they have a nasty respiratory virus, in the hospital, we'll put the patient in a special isolation room and then we'll use these masks when we go in to see them. So every doctor has used these. Mm, but those are not freely available to the public and should be, and those that are, should be, it should be left for the healthcare workers because there's a, such a shortage that some nurses are putting bandanas over their faces, which is certainly not going to help that much. So we need to be encouraging people to use the face mask, but not to make, to make sure that the healthcare workers are getting them first. I know this has been a major problem. Yeah, that's a major problem because the, because the issue is that we need to protect our frontline healthcare workers who are just as vulnerable and, and susceptible to this disease because they're human. And if you look at what's happening in Italy, it's quite disturbing the number of healthcare workers who are continuing to work while sick or yeah. who are working and ultimately crash and end up themselves as the patient. Mm. That's and it's so much. It's happening so much. It's happening all over the world as well. With that, and even in the states, it's starting to happen as well. So before I talk about vaccine, I just want to actually stress something because I know it's been another bit of misinformation. There's also the concept of you allow the, the virus to move through the community and the natural immunity to build. And I know there's been a bit of an argument in terms of that. As far as I understand, that that's definitely not what we need to do in this situation. Isolation versus letting everyone just wander around and develop natural immunity is not going to be the way that this this particular COVID. Can be handled. Is that correct? Can you speak a little bit about that? The issue is that at this point, the virus is past the point of containment. Mm-hmm. Now, I understand that China claims, and who, you know, you, of course, with China, it's hard to know what is real and what is not. They're sharing information mm-hmm. the way that they want to, but mm-hmm. they claim that they have eliminated new cases of the COVID virus. But the problem is that with this virus, ultimately, All it takes is one person being introduced into the population to restart the entire process again. And so it's, Mm -hmm. it's hard to take this virus with where it's at in the world, being an international pandemic, and saying that we can stop it in its tracks and completely contain it. So ultimately, it's going to more than likely run some sort of course. But the key is that we have some control over how that story plays. And the idea of herd immunity is where ultimately this does need to go, which is that if I'm if I am exposed and I clear the virus, mm-hmm. then I am immune and I cannot transmit that virus. Once it's cleared, I cannot transmit that virus to anyone else. So I am protected and I'm one less person that can be a reservoir to spread mm-hmm. the virus. What you don't want though, and what you're alluding to a little bit, Carolyn, is the possibility of this just basically being allowed to spread without restriction. Mm. Because if we do that, if we take away, if we basically prioritize our economy and say that we're not going mm-hmm. to you know, isolate, we're not going to slow down, then what we're going to have is we're going to have a situation like Italy and we're going to make yeah. it way worse. Exactly. So this is one that has to be contained before we start developing the immunity to it. It has to be contained, controlled and understood before we can move into that kind of thinking. So talking about that side, let's talk about vaccines. And we, I know they're currently working on a vaccine and that takes a long time. Can you explain about vaccines and how it's 
but how it relates to COVID-19. Sure. So on January 22nd, they, for the first time, unlocked the genetic code of the COVID-19 virus. This is an RNA virus. It's kind of like half of a DNA strand. Mm-hmm. And so they basically were able to do that. And that's what opened up the possibility of creating tests for it. And that's also what opened up the possibility of developing a vaccine for it. And once you know the genetic identity of the virus, then what you can do is you can take that virus and its genetic code and you can break it into pieces and figure out how to present it to a healthy human in a way where it will basically train their immune system to protect them from this virus should they come into contact with the real thing at some point in the future. Hmm. And that's the general idea between behind all of these vaccines. vaccines. You know, this is, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, polio was a huge issue 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. And the polio vaccine uh, virtually eradicated it. Mm, and, and there's other examples of that as well. Measles, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's what they're in the process of trying to develop. The problem is that, you know, although that sounds wonderful, it takes time. It takes time and you want it done properly. You don't want to rush it to the point that you roll out a shoddy vaccine because this is delicate stuff that we're talking about here. This is a person's immune system. And the response of the immune system to this virus actually has a lot to say about how likely they are to survive and how well they're going to do. And there are concerns that if they're too quick with the vaccine, they can actually do something that makes the virus even more powerful. And that's a scary idea. You're making it even more powerful. That can actually backfire. And that's where there's been the risk of accelerated testing, isn't it? That 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 exactly, exactly. what you've just described can happen. That's what you Because I know what, there's, yeah. been a, there's, cause there's been a debate about accelerating the testing and skipping the animal trials and that kind of thing. But yes. it's, there's such a risk for that too. But I read a disturbing article just a day or so ago saying that they've decided to take that risk in certain parts of the world to actually accelerate the testing. Do you, do you know anything about that? What is the general plan for vaccine development? Yeah, I, I, I don't know a ton of where specifically they would be doing that. I just, you know, I think that time will tell. And when the time comes where they, there's a claim that there is a vaccine available, I look forward to basically reviewing what information they've already collected on, you know, the utility of this vaccine and, and what it does to a person who then comes into contact with the virus. And I just hope that where there's enough data there to say that we we will feel comfortable with giving this, you know, whether it be to me or to anyone else, I want to know that it's the right choice. Exactly. And it does take about, what, 12 to 14 months to develop a vaccine and put it through the, the required trials? Usually at Is least. Is that correct? Usually yeah, at, least. at Usually least. 12 months. At least. Yeah. At least. Okay, so we're a year out from that, that the process has begun, but we're a year out from that. And also see that the genomic sequence between SARS and COV-1 and COV-2, this the COVID-1 now, is 86% similar, but that doesn't mean that we can just grab the SARS vaccine, because I know that that's some of the questions that people have been asking. You can't just use that one, because there's, even though they are, the genomic sequence is similar, 86% is not 100%. There's still that 14% difference that can make a life and death difference in a person. Is that correct? Yeah, 100%. And, and that's where you, you, you continue to need the appropriate testing and the, the appropriate, you know, as desperate as we are for some sort of solution, that doesn't mean that we should mortgage, you know, everything and, and take a risk that could make it actually worse. So we have to be very cautious with how we go about doing that. And then also based on, on that, we, we need to potentially stop talking about this as just being a bad version of the flu. 
I think that's one of the pieces of misinformation that needs to be dealt Mm. with the most, to be honest with you. So, you know, people, I hear a lot of people who I think, you know, they're very, they're well-intentioned and I think we all have our own way of dealing with scary information. And some people it's almost like now. They play it down the dial. Yeah. 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 And so this is clearly worse than the flu. There has never been a flu. I was I was a resident in the intensive care unit in 2009 when the H1N1 came through, mm. and there was never there were sick patients. Don't get me wrong, but there was never a moment that we overwhelmed our system with the H1N1. There's never mm. been a flu in the modern era, meaning you know during our lifetime, Carolyn, mm. that has overwhelmed our healthcare system. The closest that you can come in terms of a comparison would be the, you know, once in a hundred year flu that we had in 1918. Yeah, the Spanish, Spanish flu. flu. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's the one, that's the one virus that I think you could offer a comparison to, to this. Yeah. So even, this is even way worse than MERS and Ebola that scared people. Well, those were con- much more containable. So, mm-hmm. so MERS for the listeners at home is the Middle East, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. And similar to SARS in a way, it came out in 2012 and it trans- transferred from, a, you, you and I were talking about this briefly beforehand, that it transferred from Thanks, a bat yeah. to, a into a camel. Mm. And then the mm-hmm. camel into a human. transferred to a human. And it was widespread mm. that basically it had transferred from camel to camel and then jumped mm-hmm. to humans throughout the Middle East. And mm-hmm. humans were getting very sick. But then when they realized this, that it was the camel, when they separated humans from the camels, they were able they could to contain, contain it. it. Exactly, mm. because there was never person-to-person transfer. Mm. And that's what makes this one particularly dangerous. And that's and that again, going back to the SARS, by the time you manifested symptoms, you knew you had it. And that's when you were actually shedding or, or potentially spreading the virus. And that's very different than the person who is asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic who could be transferring the virus to their friends and family. What you've just said is extremely important. I mean, everything you've been saying is extremely important. But to consider the fact that SARS, when it, when people showed the symptoms, that's when we knew that people were then going to transfer. So it was easier to contain, as yes. was the MERS, where they identified it was the camel. Once they had that, they could contain. Yes. What about Ebola? Ebola is a different virus. It's not a respiratory virus. Mm-hmm. It is very nasty, but it's transferred through bodily mm-hmm. fluids. So as long as you don't come into also contact. Containable. Mm-hmm. Very containable. Very containable. Yeah. So, but the, and so none of these are like that. And this is what we want to stress with everyone is that this is not flu. This is not easily containable. The closest comparison is to Spanish flu. And this is something that we really do need to, to do the social distancing, to, to follow the containment guidelines, to wash the hands for 20 seconds. This is really something we need to be very, very serious about. Yeah. And all age groups. Can you talk about the age groups, Dr. B? A lot of youngsters, because it hasn't hit as many youngsters as, as it's hit elderly people from 50 55 onwards. Yes. So let me say that this is one of the other major pieces of misinformation that we need to be very cautious with. Mm. And before I even dive into that, let me say that the reason why this is so important, these things that we're trying to do, like you said, Carolyn, social distancing, washing your hands, being very cautious, basically you need to act as if you carry it yourself. Mm, if you act as if you're carrying good. yourself, yeah, then 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 you will personally try to keep your distance from other people, so that they don't you don't infect them and they won't infect you. And the reason why this is so important is how quickly we could overwhelm our 
entire healthcare system mm-hmm. and how many, how quickly our ventilators would disappear. And if you look at Italy, what's happening, see, here's the problem. Everyone is saying, oh, well, it doesn't, it doesn't affect younger people. Okay. Younger people currently are not dying at the rate that older people are dying. Mm. Older people with comorbid conditions, which overseas is heart disease and lung disease. Mm-hmm. But we think here in the U.S. will include people with obesity, which we have a lot mm. more of. I had a discussion about that with someone this morning about the obesity. And that also, you've, I mean, you're a gut health doctor too. The modern American diet compromised everyone's immune systems. Yes, and we can talk about that more when we when we talk about the immune system, if you like. But the issue is that 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 is the population that we worry is the most vulnerable to actual death. But mm-hmm. if we overrun our healthcare system, if we don't have respirators for patients, then we're going we're going to have people who come in that won't receive treatment at all. They won't get what they need because we don't have the ability from a resource perspective to give it to them. And when we look at younger populations, we're finding that they're it's, they're not just as likely to end up in the intensive care unit, but there is a very large percentage of young people who are ending up in the intensive care unit. There's a person that I know right now who's down the street in the hospital who's in their 50s, and they're in the intensive care unit with this with this infection right now here in my community. Mm. And there are, if you look at the data, between ages 19 and 54, 38% of the hospitalizations for this virus, 38%, are people who are between the ages of 19 and 54. And so we're consuming those resources too. Us younger people may be less likely to die, but if we're consuming those resources too, then we're part of the problem in the sense that if if what ultimately will spike the mortality rate is resource utilization and exhausting Mm. our resources, young people ending up in the hospital is exhausting the resources, and that leads to Mm. older people dying. Mm. Gosh, and then a 19 and under, the risk, what is the risk factor? Well, so the good news with 19 and under is that they do not appear to develop severe disease for the most part. We don't know exactly why, but we also, you know, are not yet at a point where we can say that they're not transmitting the virus, which is why keeping our schools closed for the moment is very important. And I will tell you also, Carolyn, that. Mm. There's some data coming out about toddlers and there is risk. Mm. There is risk with toddlers. There is risk. In fact, many of the people who are less than one year of age who contract the virus, there have been good news. There's, there have been no deaths, no deaths Mm. below age 10. Okay. So that's great. I celebrate that, but children can get sick too. So we need to be very cautious. Mm. If you have a toddler at home, we need to be even more vigilant. Mm, you see, so we can't just guess that it's, it's just that older age group and therefore I'm fine there if I can go out. I actually love what you said and I think it's a key takeaway that people need to adopt and that is that act as though you're a carrier, which means that you need to be very cautious about who you are in contact with. Right. It just shifts the whole, it just kind of, you just shift your whole perspective on how you handle this. So that just, I, I just wanted to stress that because I think it's very, very important that you, you know, you mentioned that. Another thing is that I know that they're working on a treatment and I know hydroxy Chloroquine has been, you know, the anti-malaria tablet that's been around, anti-malaria drug that's been around for over 50 years. And remdesivir, can you speak about those in terms of treatment? And I know that remdesivir is in clinical trials, there's five running currently, but there's a lot of side effects and complications and all kinds of factors around that too. Would you mind speaking to the potential treatments? Sure. So one of the challenges that we have is that we don't yet have what we would 
describe as a reliable treatment. This is changing by the day, and there are a lot of great minds who are working hard to try to get this figured out for us. And so where we stand is that remdesivir is a drug that was actually developed to treat Ebola. And there are some similarities in the sense that these are single-stranded RNA viruses. So Ebola, SARS, MERS, and then this, COVID-19, mm-hmm. are all single-stranded RNA viruses. So, mm-hmm. so the, the drug is currently going through clinical trials. It's being tested for the treatment of COVID-19. And we will probably find out in the fall where things stand. And they're trying to basically move that along as quickly as they can. So essentially, this was a drug that was already in the pipeline. Mm -hmm. And it just needs some additional testing for us to see whether or not this could or could not work. And we don't know yet. The other thing that is out there that I think is exciting, but we have to also see where this goes, is chloroquine which is Mm -hmm. to treat malaria. Chloroquine, there are some early data that in small studies that are suggesting a benefit. There is a study that just came out. It's in press from France, very small. So it has to be taken with a grain of salt. We can't take Mm -hmm. this and suddenly think this is the solution for humanity. But in the study using chloroquine, very good results in patients who were hospitalized with the COVID-19 virus. And when they combined it with azithromycin, mm, which, which is, is a, it's a macroid antibiotic, mm-hmm. a type of antibiotic, oftentimes used for pneumonia. When they combined the two, they actually had, there was only six patients. So again, green assault. It's, it's cautious, yeah. We need to be cautious. Let's not assume that this is going to be the solution, but let's let's test it further and see if it can be. When they combine the chloroquine with the azithromycin, fantastic results among the six patients that received it. Is that going into clinical trials? Are they doing clinical trials on that at the moment? That combination, the chloroquine and, and the, what did you call it? I always get that name wrong. Yeah, it's essentially the Z-Pack. The, so it's the azithromycin, Z-Pack, yeah, yeah. azithromycin. Mm-hmm. Yep, so it's the same thing that people get when they get like their, you know. Yeah. Upper respiratory, you know, infection. infections. So, mm-hmm. Also, are there clinical trials happening at the moment with that combination after this particular one with six patients? Well, so this, so the, this study that was very small, thirty-six patients total, only six of them that received the combination of both, and then there were a couple that received chloroquine monotherapy, so by itself, it literally got published, I think, two days ago. And oh, really? So, yeah, okay. so we're rushing this stuff out. I am, I am a hundred percent certain that. Further clinical trials will be occurring as soon as possible with looking at chloroquine and the azithromycin chloroquine combination. And if it works, the beauty of it is that it is already available. So we could do that. Mm, That's fantastic. I know that there's been a bit of concern around the side effects of chloroquine, but that's also like any drug. You've got the side effects too. So it's all managing it and if it's saving lives, one has to, we have to go with the the life-saving aspect. Yeah, and it's it's about risk benefit. And the one nice mm-hmm. thing about chloroquine is that we do have experience with it. It's an old drug, exactly. so we know exactly what it does, and so we we can manage those things if need be. That's really good news in the in these dark times. So, okay, well, I know that this is a question that lots of people are wondering: is how do they test for the virus? You know, I know there's people talking about the test that we already in the beginning said we don't have enough off but if we could if you could just explain you know the nasal swab and so on and then people are asking me that if i think i have some symptoms what should i do go to the hospital immediately or stay at home so 
Those are good questions. Those are great questions, and they're and they're very relevant because we all need to have mm-hmm. a game plan of how we handle ourselves through all this. So the test that we do is a nasopharyngeal swab. So essentially, it's a swab that will play, be placed deep up into the nose and rotated, and that's where they they're able to collect you know the specimen needed to actually run the test for this particular coronavirus. So that's the test that we are currently using. Now, the problem that we have at the moment is the limitation of how many tests are actually available within your community and resource utilization. So I can tell you that, and things are like dynamically changing, Carolyn, by the day. Mm. But I have good friends who are on the front lines in New York City where it's taking off Mm -hmm. this week. And they had patients who who would come in with symptoms and have to run an influenza test first to show influenza negative before they could move forward with doing the COVID-19 test. And then they had to wait oftentimes several days to get results. Yeah. And so, and that's part of the issue that we're having with the testing. So what's the right approach for people? If you have any concern about the possibility of you personally having this, the most important thing that you can do is to isolate yourself from other people. Because if you do have it, you've already taken the step necessary to stop the spread of the virus. Mm. And I would encourage you to reach out. So I don't love this. This is, this is a flaw in our current setup. I wish that I didn't have to say that the answer is call your doctor. Right now, the answer mm-hmm. is call your doctor. What I want is I would really love if we either on a state basis or on a federal basis, federal would make it a lot easier, if we had a game plan like South Korea, where it's like, look, we're setting up places for you to go. If you think you have symptoms, we'll have tests go available. There. Exactly. Go there. Let's make it simple. Let's make it free. Drive through. Yeah. Simple, free, drive through. Yeah. Readily available. We, that's what we need right now. So that's what we've got to really hope and pray that they get to that point that we can up that. This episode is brought to you by Ned. Ned's collection of full-spectrum hemp oil products contains CBD extracted from the finest organic hemp plants and is one of my favorite go-to products to improve my sleep, reduce pain, and boost my mood. I love Ned's commitment to sustainability and purity. And ladies, they have some great products to help ease period pains and help balance hormones. My daughters love their Natural Cycles collection. Ned products are also non-GMO, a great source of antioxidants, and can help reduce inflammation and will not get you high. You can get 15% off today with free shipping by going to www.helloned.com forward slash Dr. Leaf. That's www.helloned.com forward slash Dr. Leaf and use the code Dr. Leaf. The link and offer details will be in the show notes. And then also if, they, if they're feeling sick, what can they do at home while they're self-isolating? So, you know, it depends on the severity of your symptoms. If you have a fever, it is completely fair game to go ahead and use Tylenol to lower that fever. If you have shortness of breath, then clearly you need to seek medical care mm-hmm. at that okay. point. So fevers, aches, and pains take the Tylenol, but if you have shortness of breath or any battling with your breathing, you should be contacting a healthcare professional immediately. 100%. And there's a real quick, there was a recent explosion of information about the use of NSAIDs like ibuprofen, aspirin, naproxen for fever in this setting. And it's, 
a it's a fiercely debated topic that is rapidly evolving. Where we stand at the moment is that the data to say that that NSAIDs are problematic in the setting of a fever with coronavirus are not yet clear. But the safe choice is to use Tylenol in the setting of having a fever and trying to lower the fever. The second part of this that I want to really emphasize, the reason why I brought it up, Carolyn. I'm glad you did. It was one of my questions. Yes, is that there are people who are currently using NSAIDs, most frequently aspirin. There are a lot of people who have heart disease that are using aspirin to protect themselves. Mm-hmm. And based what I what I don't want is fear of NSAIDs from this to cause people to to quit their NSAID use without permission from their doctor. Because if you quit your aspirin and then you subsequently suffer a heart attack as a result of that, you've ended up with an outcome that is worse than if you actually contracted the virus, particularly the low-dose aspirin. Okay. Yeah, the whole debate about, around things like ibuprofen, making it worse, that's still a debate between ibuprofen and Tylenol, but you're saying to stick with Tylenol, and if you're on aspirin for heart issues, don't suddenly stop, but then use Tylenol. Yeah, exactly. So it seems the safest is Tylenol. Am I hearing you correctly? You're is hearing that, me correctly. Uh, what you would advise? Okay. Stay, with, stay on what you're on, and the safest then is the Tylenol, and to maybe keep away from the ibuprofen? If you have a fever, if you have a fever, then don't use the ibuprofen. I would use the Tylenol. Just repeat that again for everyone. The inset as well, explain what that is. This is so important. If you can just maybe just summarize that because it's very important. Yeah. So, so just to summarize, if you, if you spike a fever and we're trying to control the fever, of course, you want to call your doctor and notify them. And the other thing that you may want to do is take Tylenol. So in the United States, it's acetaminophen. And mm-hmm. in Europe, it is under a different name, paracetamol. If you spike the fever, I would not recommend the use of ibuprofen at this point for lowering the fever. But if you are on these medicines, aspirin, ibuprofen, naproxen, and they are prescribed for your do- by your doctor for a medical condition, I would not at this point recommend that you stop those medicines, continue those medicines. But if you have a fever, use Tylenol. Add Tylenol. Okay, very well said, very very clearly said. Okay, so do you think everyone, well, I mean, we don't have the test kits, but if we did, should everyone get tested or just those with symptoms? I think this has really been answered because asymptomatic transfer occurs. So is the ideal situation that everyone gets tested? Yes, in my mind, yes. If there were, if there were no limitations, if you, if you created utopian, I am, I am given unlimited mm-hmm. tests. I'm giving everyone a test right now. Okay. All right. And what about the home quarantine in terms of transfer between family members? You know, as they approached it in Wuhan, they took, if you were in your family and you identified, they pulled you out your family and quarantined you. Here we're putting everyone into the homes and if someone's sick, you're kind of looking after each other. What about that in terms of the spread? Yeah. And I think that's one of the challenges is ultimately you have to decide who is your small, very limited group of people that you're going to essentially weather the storm together. So, you know, I, I hate the fact that I'm a healthcare worker and there's a high probability that I'm exposed to the virus and may bring it home to my wife and children. Now, I hate that. Yeah. And so this is where I'm hoping that testing will ultimately become more readily available because that's what they did in Korea is once someone tested positive, they checked, they checked family members immediately and they got them separated. And that would be the ideal. So at this stage, people need to self-isolate, stay together as a family. And until we've got this testing thing sorted out, and then in the utopia world, everyone must go for their tests and we can start getting more isolation and 
control it even more. Yes. So that's kind of another phase that hopefully will happen. And there's also talk about it going away when the weather warms up. Is it heat resistant? So at this point, I think that most scientists agree that it would be wishful thinking for this to go away when it heats up. We don't know. Okay. There is a chance. Okay. It's just one of those unknown. This whole COVID-19 is an unknown factor that we're dealing with. What advice will Dr. Dr. B, would you give to doctors, nurses, EMTs, and other medical staff who are working overtime on the front lines? How can they manage their emotional and mental health and burnout? I mean, you're, in, you're pretty much there yourself in the front line. Well, uh, there are people. There are people other than me who are much closer to it. The emergency room doctors, the infectious mm-hmm. disease doctors, pulmonologists, the, the hospitalists. And what I would say to those people is that I, I really, really hope that. Th- first of all, thank you. Mm-hmm. Big thank you. And second of all, I hope that you make time and space to take care of yourself, because people are putting it all on the line to try to help others right now, and it's amazing and it's heroic, but it's kind of one of these situations where if you're not well yourself, how can you take care of others? Exactly. It's the oxygen mask in the, in the airplane situation. Put it on your face so that you can help others. And the other thing too is that I think <laughs> there needs to be a place for us to decompress. Mm. All right. We need to decompress. And so, so part of that is doing things that you normally do and you enjoy. It's okay to go for a run. It's okay. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I love about where your social media has been recently, Carolyn, is that you're helping us to do that. You're doing a great job. Thank you. We, we really are trying to help people just also stay calm because as you and I both know that the mind controls, you know, has massive effect on the immune system. So if we yeah. get into that state of panic, you know, we definitely are going to affect our immune system. I don't know yeah. if you want to speak a little bit about that. So when we talk about the immune system, what we're talking about is what's going to happen if you do actually contract the virus. Mm-hmm. And it's your body, you know, essentially trying to clear this virus out, putting up resistance. And what's interesting about it is that what you want is you, you don't want necessarily more. What you want is you want optimized. You want an immune mm. system that is going to just kind of nail it perfectly without overshooting mm-hmm. and going too far. And mm. so because an overaggressive immune system is an immune system actually that can crash. And that's exactly. what sepsis is. Yeah. So septic, sepsis and septic shock, where a patient has an overwhelming systemic infection and they, you know, they can't breathe, they drop their blood pressure, they lose consciousness, you know, it's incredibly dangerous. And that actually is not the infection itself. That's the body's response to the infection, which is excessive and leads to, you know, essentially this crashing scenario that can be life-threatening for people. And that's part of what we're seeing in this. And, and honestly, Carolyn, if the azithromycin works, mm-hmm. if the azithromycin, going back to the chloroquine and azithromycin, yes. mm-hmm. if it works, I think the reason why it works is not that it treats the virus. I think the reason that it works is because of the anti-inflammatory properties. Because ah. we've seen this with azithromycin with pneumonia. Mm. So, wow. Uh, yeah. So, and, and you know, many people are asking, so how can I build my immune system? Yes. The answer is and we can we can elaborate this at another, on this even more in, a, in the future. Definitely, we're going to dive into this. Mm-hmm, yeah. absolutely. So, but but the the point from my perspective is this is not about an individual supplement. This is not about a health hack or a secret mm-hmm. that you've never heard of. What mm-hmm. this is about is about wellness, complete body wellness, taking care of your body, optimizing mm-hmm. yeah, the whole thing. 
and it, and it includes the mental. It includes the mental. It's and driven, so, driven by the mental. If I can jump in there, it's driven by the mental because your mind is making everything else work. So if we don't get our minds right, we're not going to get that optimization from the good food and exercise and everything. Yes, 100%. And if people are asking the question, where does the immune system live? The immune system actually lives in the gut. 70% of the immune system lives in the gut. So I'm going to put my gastroenterology hat back on for a moment. There we go. And tell you that I, I honestly believe that more than ever right now, Gut health is as important as it's ever been because when we have gut health, we have that optimized immune system that I'm talking about. And let me give you a quick example. They did a study. We can't we can't do this in humans because it would be unethical to infect humans with a virus, right? To like give mm -hmm. influenza to a bunch of people. You can't do that. Mm -hmm. but, but they did a mouse study where they infected the mice with influenza and then they subjected them to two diets. One was a high fiber diet the other was a low fiber diet. And what did they find when they did this? Influenza, of course, is a respiratory virus in the same way that this COVID-19 is. Mm -hmm. What they found is that the mice that were on the high fiber diet had less likelihood of death, had less symptoms, had better lung function. And they asked the question, well, why did that happen? And what they discovered was that when you consume fiber, you release something called short-chain fatty acids. And mm -hmm. short-chain fatty acids optimize the immune system. And when I say optimize, here's what I'm talking about. It gives you more of the CD8 cells, which are specific cells in your immune system that will fight the virus. So you get the fighters mm -hmm. in the game and you get them fighting. Mm -hmm. but then so you have the fibers, you get the fighters in the game. You get the fibers in the game. But here's the other thing. Mm -hmm. At the same time, the fiber with the short-chain fatty acids actually reduced the immune system on the other side. So the part that you don't need that can flip out of control and lead to sepsis, this is where it was really, really critically important. And so the point from my perspective is that all these ideas, sleep, exercise, meditation, taking care of yourself, getting your mind right, and then eat well, eat well. And in this study, we see that a high fiber diet is beneficial. And it's really quite simple. It's mm. a clean diet. Mm. This is fantastic. Dr. B, we'll do more of this next week or, or soon. There's so many things and it's changing by the hour, but I'm going to have to bring the interview to a close now, unfortunately, because I still have a lot of questions and I know people do, but I'm going to get more questions sent in and I'd love to invite you back again to just help us go to the next phase with how to manage COVID-19. As For we sure. know, this time next week, this time tomorrow, this time in an hour, it's in an hour's time, it's going to be changed. So thank you for all your input and advice and excellent information. Where can people reach you if they have more questions? You can find me on my website, theplantfedgut.com. I'll be having the my COVID-19 write-up available very soon. And you can find me on Instagram at thegutthealthmd. Fantastic. And we'll put that in the show notes as well. Dr. B, thank you so much for your invaluable advice today and take care of you and your family. And I look forward to having you back soon. Thank you, Carolyn. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com. And to sign up for my weekly newsletter, where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leith. 
Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.